Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at innovating the Pixar way. Why the black sheep in your company may just be the keys to unlocking innovation success. The importance of lifelong learning in creating a culture that thrives on innovation. And the four common proficiencies to making art and innovation a team sport. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Bill Capodai, co-author of Innovate the Pixar Way, Business Lessons from the World's Most Creative Playground. Along with his co-author, Lynn Jackson, Bill runs Capodai Jackson Consulting, which he founded in 1993 after holding management consulting positions at A.T. Kearney, Ernst & Winnie, now Ernst & Young, and Coopers & Librand. Bill is an internationally acclaimed speaker who gives keynotes that focus on Walt Disney's original success credo, dream, believe, dare, do. Prior to writing the Pixar way, Bill and Lynn wrote the Disney way, harnessing the management secrets of Disney in your company. The Disney way was named best business book of the year by Fortune Magazine. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Thanks for having me, Will. Absolutely. So let me start off today by asking about your latest book, since most of our discussion today will flow from that. Uh, Pixar is often celebrated as kind of an innovation breeding ground and a company that really does things the right way. Many of our previous guests have talked about Pixar, as a matter of fact. So for a company that's often celebrated like that in the innovation space, how did you get access to write Innovate the Pixar Way? Well, Pixar came onto our radar screen in 1995 as we were researching the Disney Way, our first book. Mm -hmm. And we, we watched this, this rather obscure Northern California studio rise from what, what appeared at first just to be a, a subcontractor to Disney in technology to ultimately re replacing Disney animation in the late 1990s, nearly 2000s, and then being purchased by the Disney organization in 2006 for a cool $7.4 billion. And you know, what, what a better compliment to, to our book, the, the Disney Way. We had just rewritten uh, the Disney Way in 2006 when, when Pixar was, was purchased, mm -hmm. where we included about seven other companies that were using Walt's Dream, Believe, Dare, Do concepts in their organization. So we thought that the Pixar Way would be a, a great compliment to that, especially when we learned that the, the, the founders and key people in, in Pixar Ed Catmull, the president of, of Pixar cur currently, and one of the co-founders, Alvy Ray Smith, retired uh, co-founder of Pixar, and John Lasseter, the phenomenally talented chief creative officer of Pixar and Disney Animation Studios, all emulated Walt Disney's concepts. Okay, got it. So, so did you did you literally pitch those guys, and they said, "Okay, sure, come on in and write the book." Well, we were we were very fortunate that Alvy Ray Smith, who's retired, you know, had a lot more time than the other guys mm -hmm. to give us as much time as we needed to really learn about what made Pixar's culture tick. Uh, the other gentlemen, you know, and and other animators, we had you know telephone interviews and such. Uh, they were finishing up the production of Up <laughs> at the time of of our writing, and and we we couldn't get access to the studio, as you can imagine. It's, sure, you know, it's it's, it's not like the Disney parks where you can, you know, go and observe customer service in action. You know, they're a working studio and they don't have, uh, 
you know, people wandering around all the time. Sure. So uh, early in the book, you talk about first mover advantage not always being that much of an advantage. And you use McDonald's and Walmart as two examples. So what do you think helped those two companies become larger than life when they were hardly the first fast food chain or department store to make it? Well, you know, the, the, the first mover advantage, you know, has some advantage. You know, they, they have their, their idea and their, their idea is new and creative. But, you know, the example I, I use, you know, the, the fast food stores were back in, you know, 1912 with, with White Castle and the discount department stores go back even further than that with Woolworths in 1871. All too often, though, those, those, those first movers, you know, they, they turn into boring routines and boring companies, you know, and, and at best, they just kind of fade off into obscurity as, uh, as White Castle, or at worst, you know, they go out of business altogether. I think, you know, all too infrequently, I think someone comes up with, with a new and innovative idea to breathe new life into, into some of those, those old processes and old uh, products that we know. Unfortunately, I don't think it's, it's, it's soon enough. Yeah. So, so kind of feeding into that one part of the book that I thought was very, was very interesting was where you talk about the danger of sequels that they see at Pixar. So at the time the book was being written, the only sequel Pixar had ever done was Toy Story 2. They've gone on to do a few since. But sure. Can you share with listeners some of the reasons that Pixar tends to avoid doing sequels of their work? Well, sure. And I don't think as, as much as currently as they avoid doing them as when they do them, they want to make sure that they are the best that they could be. I mean, that the story is really solid. Mm-hmm. During the last half of, of the, the 1990s, you know, Disney lost focus uh, for, for a lot of reasons. We go into the Disney way and, and we don't have time to go into here. And, and they produced a lot of what uh, the industry calls formulaic productions. Uh, the the Jungle Book 2, The Lion King 2, 102 Dalmatians. Uh, the most bizarre was Lion King 1 and a half. And, <laughs> Everybody and remembers that one, right? Mm. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And Pixar didn't want to fall into the same trap of, of formulate production. So they stayed away from sequels as Walt Disney did. You know, Walt, Walt Disney said that he wouldn't do a sequel because why should he invest the, the funds and the creative energies to do a sequel when he could use that same funds and creative energies to do something brand new? Well, Toy Story 2 came about as during the time when Disney and Pixar were, were partners and and Pixar was, uh, you know, this was Pixar's big break. Disney was was co-financing at, at first three films and then five films. They increased that to co-financing and distributing and co-producing, putting their name on it. And Disney came to Pixar and said, let's do Toy Story 2 because Toy Story 1 was so great. Let's do it as a direct-to-video release and, uh, you know, just make it really real on the cheap and we'll slap it to the video stores and everybody will make a gazillion dollars on it. Well, luckily, John Lasseter pushed back on, on Disney and said, hey, the only reason to do one of these sequels is if the story is really great. And let's do it as a, as a full, full production, full theatrical production. And that's what they did. I mean, John Lasseter said, you know, these were the people who gave us Cinderella 2. You know, they wanted their movies to be like Walt Disney's that would be around for generations and generations to come. Okay, good deal. So uh, one of the things that you talk about in the book is about how the quote-unquote black sheep in a company 
can actually be the perfect ones to add to the most challenging products. Can you tell the story or the anecdote that you share in the book about the movie that was made with the black sheep at Pixar? And sure. talk a little bit about what it is that makes black sheep predisposed to creative thinking and innovation. Sure. What, what Pixar didn't want to fall into, they didn't want to fall into the trap after the success of Toy Story, A Bug's Life, and Toy Story 2, which were all blockbuster hits, which all other hits have been blockbuster hits. They didn't want to fall into this formulaic uh, trap that Disney had fall, fallen into. And they wanted to make sure that they were being innovative and not making things the, the same way. Mm -hmm. So they went out and hired Brad Bird. And Brad was known as in the industry as kind of being a maverick and having his own way of doing things. And he had bounced around to several other studios, including Disney. And he had this idea for The Incredibles. And The Incredibles was, was a great story and all the creative types at, at Pixar just loved the idea of The Incredibles. But The Incredibles had a, a lot of problems in, in technology at that time. It was very hard to animate human figures and, and hair and water and fire. And, and these were all elements of, of, of The Incredibles, as well as it had multiple set changes, which were very expensive and, and very hard from a technology standpoint to do. So the, the technology people told Brad that it was going to take 10 years to make this movie and it was going to be an astronomical budget. So, so Brad went to the Disney leaders and said, you know, give, give me your black sheep. Give me your, the, the people that have had different ideas and different ways of doing things, but weren't allowed to try new and, and creative things because of the success of the, of the first three films. And these black sheep, you know, really rallied to, to the occasion. The Incredibles cost less per minute than any other of the three films previously. It won the Best Animated Picture Award that year, and I think uh, Best uh, Academy Award for uh, Sound Editing as well. But most importantly, it was the highest-selling DVD and video of that year. And Brad said this was all because the Pixar leaders gave him uh, the latitude to, to, to try new and wacky things. So, you know, what makes us, I, I think all people in most organizations have creative ideas and, and, and they're creative, but all too often, I think we stifle those ideas. And the, the key is, is, is trusting people to try things, letting people know what the end result needs to be. And, you know, there are some constraints, but then giving them their, uh, um, their leave to, to, to try some of these wacky things, learn from their mistakes, try them again, and the results can be the Incredibles. Nice. Love it. There, there's a stat in the book that I thought was telling that reinforces the kind of what have you done for me late, lately nature of the business world today. And it's this, a, a decade ago, a CEO's average tenure was 12 years. When you were writing the book in 2009, that had shortened to five years so in an environment like this, why is focusing on long-term results something that you think is vitally important for companies looking to maintain an innovative culture? Well, I think it's, it's, it's critical to all businesses. You know, I think that the short-term mentality, you know, living for today at the expense of tomorrow is a, is a virus that has infected us, our economy, and has affected our, our nation. Uh, I, I saw a, a recent study of 400 chief financial officers, and they were asked the question, would they take short-term profits today at 
the expense of long-term results in the future. And 80% of them said they would they would take the short-term results. That's scary. So That's scary. It, it is scary. And and I think we're, we're we're trying to live for today and at the expense of tomorrow. And you know, it's it's something that Disney never has has done. I mean, they've always looked in the long term and the long term viewpoint of, of things. And I think that's that's the key to to successful businesses. Okay, great. And uh, when I was when I was talking with uh, with one of your one of your coworkers, Marie, who was setting this up, she mentioned that it might be interesting for listeners to know how some of the things that you talked about in the book can be applied to. Uh, companies in various different industries. So the day that she and I exchanged emails, I believe you were at a hospital or, or, or a healthcare facility teaching them some of the lessons of innovate the Pixar way. So so we'll come back to the book, but how do how do some of these lessons apply to companies in various other verticals? Sure, I, I think the the four lessons uh, revolve around. Walt Disney was once asked what the secret his success was. He said he didn't know how much of a secret it was, but before we'd start any new project, he would think of four things. He would dream of ways of doing business that have never been done before. He would test those dreams against his beliefs and values. He would dare to take the risk to make those dreams come true. And lastly, he'd put plans together so those dreams do become a reality. Uh, you know, dream, believe, dare, do are the four principles that made Disney successful. And they're the four principles that, that work at, at Pixar, only we've, uh, we've changed them a little bit because I think one of the essence of Pixar is that they look at the world through the eyes of a child. That's how they continue to, to capture lightning in a bottle. And they you know dream like a child, uh, believe in your playmates, dare to jump in the water and make waves, and do unleash your childlike potential. And some of the things we help clients work with is, is to begin with the dream. You know what's the story of, of of your organization? You know it's 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 more than than than, than mission a mission statement. You know what would the story be of, of yours? How does everybody rally around that story? Second thing, you know what are the values? What are the the guiding principles that 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 make your organization work? I just my favorite quote from the Disney Way came from Walt's older brother Roy, not from Walt. He said, "When values are clear, decisions are easy." So we help organizations put together their dream, create their values, their codes of conduct. You know, what are the things that, that are really important to, to delivering your product or service? And then thirdly, in the, in the area of innovation, how do, you, uh, how do you eliminate those risks? How do you overcome those risks? Um, tools like storyboarding, not only the storyboarding that's traditional in advertising, that's like a comic book, depiction of a, of a scene or an ad or an animated feature film, which Pixar and Disney still use today, but also using storyboarding as a problem-solving technique where you have possible ideas to a problem on, on index cards on a wall. I like to call this an idea landscape. And it's a, a very powerful technique that's uh, three to six times more prolific than than brainstorming in the same amount of time. So it's uh, it's a great technique to do it. And lastly, putting plans together to make sure that those those dreams do become a reality. Okay, great. Yeah, the storyboarding sounds a little bit like uh, customer journey mapping, which is something we talked about with the with the previous guest, uh, Janine Ray from from Motive Strategies. But but if I'm if I'm hearing it right, 
It's kind of imagining all the different ways that a product or service or, or interaction essentially could work. Exactly. I mean, you can you can use it for a variety of things. That's one one way. We use it for uh, customer feedback, uh, rather than you know having your traditional focus groups and spending tens of thousands of dollars on consultants to do your focus groups. You get a group of customers together and you ask them, um, you know, if your if your product is a, uh, a hotel, you know, what would be the ultimate hotel experience? If we were the Disneyland of hotels, what would that look like? Mm-hmm. And then people put all their thoughts on cards, and the cards go up on the wall, and then we give clients or we, we give the participants um, a red dot and say, of, of all those hundreds of cards that are up on the wall, what are the three things that are most important to you as a consumer of, of hotels? And then we give them a, a, a green dot and say, what are the three things that, that this hotel chain does really well that you really like about it? And then we give them a, a blue dot, three blue dots and say, what are the three things that this hotel would have to have to work on. And like I say, you can use it in a variety of, of organizations. We did it with a hospital last week. Uh, you know, almost any organization, put your product or service in there and you can and you can do it. And we say you get about three or four groups of customers together, in about three or four hours, an hour each session. You're going to have a, a, a vast amount of, of information that probably 90% of, of what a tens of thousands of dollars spent on a marketing study would, would give you. Okay, great. So so let me go back to Pixar and, and ask about the way that they display their work, because I found that to be really interesting. Can you talk about the concept of dailies? And for those of us that are not in the film industry, how they're different at Pixar versus at other Hollywood studios? Sure. At most Hollywood studios, you know, the, the, the production that's, that's done that day the, the producer or director and maybe a few other executives, you know, would, would look at these, would, would review the film that was done or the work that was done that day, you know, make changes and say, hey, this was good, this wasn't good, you know, we need to retake this one, this, is, this looks really great, um, and such. At Pixar, everyone is involved, the whole team is involved in, in the dailies. And one of the reasons for this is that they want they want the whole team to be to rally around the story number one. They want the whole team to be getting the same messages from from the director. And they want you know everyone to 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 collaborate and 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 work together. As Ed Catmull said, you know he said at first this was was rather difficult because creative types you know want to want to want to keep their their creative piece of the of the puzzle until they think it's really really right and sharing that every day with with the rest of the team was uh, was kind of an eye opener for some people but but in the end it really worked out well okay great and um, it, kind of along those lines you write in the book about the four common proficiencies of making quote unquote art a team sport and it sounds like that's something they've perfected at Pixar uh, and I imagine it's something that, that can translate over into other areas of business. Can you give a little background on what those four proficiencies are? Sure. Whenever they're they're looking at a, at a new hire, they they look for the, these four proficiencies. The first one is is depth. They look for someone who has the stick to itness to to complete their either their degree, um, or maybe it's a hobby. Even you know it, it may or may not have relevance you know to the job they're doing for instance 
uh, Pixar University. That's their internal um, learning and education and training facility it is run by a world-class juggler, Randy Nelson. He was the first dean of Pixar University. And Ed Capnell said he'd rather have a world-class juggler running his university than a mediocre educator or a mediocre artist. <laughs> so they, they look for, for depth in something, whether it be a hobby or, or, or your profession. Mm -hmm. Next, they look for breadth. They look for people that have a wide variety of interests and people that are interested in learning from others, not trying to tell everybody how interesting they am, but trying to learn from others. Third, they, they look for communication skills and not only uh, extraordinary uh, writing and speaking skills, but most importantly is listening. They say communication only happens when the when the listener says, I understand, not when the, the, the person delivering the message says, I communicated that. Mm -hmm. And lastly is collaboration, bringing all these skills, idiosyncrasies, uh, personalities together to accomplish a common objective. You know, when people working together that, that are, are the, the common lexicon at, at, at a Pixar team, when someone offers an idea, it's not... It's not, this will never work. It's always, well, what, what about this? How can we add to that? So they're always trying to plus on ideas rather than, than detract and, and cut down ideas. Yeah. We, so, so, so depth, breadth, communication, and collaboration are the four principles that they look for. Okay, great. Yeah, the, the plussing on ideas harkens back to something we talked about a while back with a guest. Uh, Russ Schoen, who had a little bit of a, a background in improv, and, a, and one of the big kind of early lessons you learned in improv is is the power of yes and. So taking an idea, and if somebody, if, say somebody throws out an idea, you don't close it off by saying, well, I'm not really sure about that. You say yes and to kind of add on and, and keep the kind of free flow of information and communication going. And then speaking of improv, that's one of the popular... Uh classes that, that the Pixar University offers is improv. You know, I like the way I like the way you just yes anded me, Bill. That was nice. <laughs> <laughs> they they encourage their their employees to take four hours of training, which may or may not be geared to the, to their job. Mm -hmm. Four hours of training on company time each and every week. Wow. That's uh yeah that, that's that's quite a bit of time on the company dime for sure. It is. Uh, so, uh, gosh, I mean, and how many employees does Pixar have? I mean, if you add up the man hours, that's got to be a boatload. Yeah, I, I think there are about 1,200 employees at, at Emeryville. There may be a few scattered around. They have studios around, a few satellite studios around, but I think there are about 1,200 people there. Okay, got it. So 4,800 man hours a week just devoted to the concept of continuing education or lifelong learning, I think, is, is the way they put it. Exactly. Okay, so we, we talked a little bit before about uh, about embracing failure and Pixar being a culture that embraces failure. Uh, what are some of the benefits to failing that might not be so obvious at first glance? Almost almost anything. I mean, by by its very nature, creativity requires curiosity and failure. You know, anybody that says you're going to do it right the first time. I mean, the 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 first of anything from a light bulb to to the, the new Apple phone, 
you know, what was a failure at some point. They, they kept trying things and doing things and, and reworking things. And the important thing about failure is, is you learn from your mistakes. You, you need to, you know, what I say, fail forward fast. Mm-hmm. You know, try something, learn from it, try it again quickly. You know, all too many leaders say, okay, you can try that, but you better not fail at it. Right. You know, and, and boy, what, what kind of message is that sending? You know, you're, you're not going to learn from in an atmosphere like that. Sure. So, so by it, it, its very nature, you're going you're gonna to try things, change them, and try them again. Every one of Pixar's blockbuster hits, Ed Catmull said, at some point in time, he wondered if it would ever get completed, if it ever if it would ever come together. And they all did. And they, you know, you know Pixar's had, uh, you know, 14 blockbuster hits, averaging over a half a billion dollars in gross revenues and costing a little over a hundred million to make. Yeah. Pretty impressive results for sure. Okay. So, so we talked a little bit before about the importance of continuing education. You also write in the book about the importance of having a culture where employees are encouraged to take breaks and simply play. So for companies out there there or for people out there that may, may be looking for something actionable that they can do, what are some of the actions companies can take to make their workplaces more hospitable to play? Well, first, I can encourage that. I mean, too many organizations are run by by SOPs, you know, standard operating procedures, and you have those fun squelchers, you know, who who were were fun and play isn't part of that. When people are having fun, they think that there's uh, productivity is being lost. So to begin with, you can say that hey, you know, when people are having fun, that doesn't mean that they're goofing off. That they're that there's a, a, a means to that. Uh, there, there's a variety of things you can do. Uh, you know. I've, I've worked with teams where we've gone out to a park in an afternoon. Everyone, everybody on the team's taken off and a nice day. And we'll go out to the park and we'll play on the swings. We'll play a, a pickup baseball game. We'll have refreshments. And then at the end of the day, at the end of the, the playtime, we'll say, how did you feel about feeling like you were, you know, 10 or 12 years old again and out, out at the park playing? And how can we translate that to, to the work we're doing? You know, it's always worked out in in more more creativity and, and, and more results. Brad Bird, one of the uh, one of the great legendary directors at Pixar, the the director of The Incredibles and Ratatouille, said that the most important thing in his budget is is not a line item in his budget, but it's the morale and the fun that people have. He said, if you have a low morale for every dollar you spend, you're going to get twenty five cents worth of value. He said, if you have a high morale and you're having fun for every dollar you spend, you're going to get $3 worth of value. And when people are having fun at what they're doing, they're, they're thinking out of the box and they're, they're being more creative. And what's even, even more important, if we are really concerned about our most important asset, our people, then we have to be concerned about not having them burnt out and, and letting them have fun and letting them enjoy their, their work. Okay, got it. So uh, in, in the book, you list three qualities that are imperative for any organization's innovation process to have. So can you share what those three qualities are and why you think each is important? Sure. You know, it, it's, it starts at the top. You know, you can, you can do some innovative things as a manager at a lower level and, and you, you can make things a little bit better. But if you, if you don't have the support at the top, if the, the top management isn't, isn't enamored with with the culture of the organization, then then it's 
it, it's not going to work. And the, the culture is is what's so so important to the organization. You know, the the booze company does a a, a yearly the one thousand innovators in the world. They've been doing this for about a dozen years. A few years ago, they said that the, the most important attribute, and every year they look at a different attribute of innovation, mm-hmm. social media, technology, digital, digitalization of things. And, and a couple of years ago, they, they came out with a study that said that, that the culture of the organization is the most important thing that contributes to innovation. And uh, the, the top management is, is his number one responsibility is creating that, a culture of innovation where, where people are, are, are trusted and respected. Mm-hmm. Then the next point is that frontline person, because if that frontline person doesn't encourage and facilitate innovation and, and continue that that trust down, you know, it's it's going to stop there. The hardest hardest job in in corporate America today is that frontline manager. You know, he's got to deal with the problems of the customers, the the the, the people, the frontline workers, and he's always and he's getting pressure also from from top management and, and new initiatives and costs and, and things to do. So, so they need to facilitate and encourage innovation. And lastly is, is tangible measurements. All too often we're measuring the wrong things in innovation. You know, we're trying to measure results instead of process capabilities and seeing, you know, where do we really need innovation? We're trying to measure results and using those results as a as hammer and carrots for the frontline workers, which is is wrong. So measuring the right things at the front line is, is so important as well. So top leadership, front line, and tangible measurements are three imperatives to really developing a, an innovative culture. Okay, great. So we're, we're running a little low on time, Bill. Any final parting words of wisdom for listeners out there that may be looking to innovate and take a page out of Pixar's book? Well, remember when we, we were kids, you know, the, the, the truth lived in our imagination. We could we could do anything. So, so make those dreams come true. Believe in your playmates. It's all about collaboration. You know, working together produces great results. Dare to jump in the water and make waves. Try something wacky. Don't be afraid to fail. But when you do fail, learn from that failure. And lastly, do unleash that, that childlike potential and put plans together and just do it. Great. And, and to, uh, to yes, Andrew, and piggyback on one of the things you just mentioned about believing in your teammates. Didn't get a chance to ask about it, but did love a, a quote from Ed Catmull that you featured in the book. And it's, if you give a good idea to a mediocre team, they'll screw it up. But if you give a mediocre idea to a great team, they'll make it work. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Bill, thanks so much for coming on today. Uh, great words of wisdom for all the listeners out there. Uh, in, in, are, are there other books or any, anywhere else that uh, people should be looking for you uh, in, in the near future? Um, well, our other, other book is The Disney Way and Innovate the Pixar Way. We have uh, The Disney Way Field Book, which is a collection of, of training exercises that you can use with teams. There's 40 or 50 uh, different exercises based on the dream, believe, dare, do philosophies. So, and you can follow us on uh, Twitter at CapoJack or at uh, our website at www.capojack.com. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Bill. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Will. Thanks again to Bill Capodai for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode 
when we're excited to have Gil House of AOL on the podcast to talk about building innovative teams, the concept of the pivot and how to manage it appropriately, the next steps and the evolution of Agile, and the Jeff Foxworthy approach to determining if the team you're working on or with is truly innovative. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.